Welcome to episode 77 of the Blue Inspiring Podcast, where we talk about all things relating to James Joyce's Ulysses. I'm Dermot. And I'm Kelly. And even though we are the podcast where we talk about all things related to James Joyce's Ulysses, today we're also going to talk about the James Joyce short story collection, Dubliners, quite a bit. Have you read Dubliners, Dermot? No. You read a little bit. You've read you've read the the dead. The dead, the bit of the end of the dead. Yeah. But you, I don't think you've read any of the stories we're talking about today. Right. But first, some business. We are a blog as well as a podcast. And if someone would like to read our blog, which is also about Ulysses and Joyce-related topics, where they can where where they can find us. Blooms and barnacles dot com. Blooms and barnacles dot com. And we've just recently published a new blog post entitled Ulysses and the Odyssey Aeolus. So we've just started the Aeolus episode, which is the seventh in Ulysses. And do you remember what that blog post is about, Dermot? Um, all the journalists and they're full of hot air. Mm-hmm. And, and it relates as it relates to the Odyssey and uh, the jerkass sailors who open the bag of wind and uh, get Odysseus into a lot of trouble. Odysseus's crewmen were described as communistic mm-hmm. in their decision by uh, Stuart Gilbert, <laughs> Joyce commentator. Mm-hmm. How dare they? Dermot has done some artwork to go with that blog post. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's just a depiction of the, the, the lads on the boat. There's a lot of drawing in this one. It's Looking at it now, it's a bit of an asterisk kind of vibe oh, to it. Oh, I see that. And, uh, they look yeah. kind of, yeah. yeah. And uh, we have a Leopold Bloom playing uh, Odysseus at the front of the ship, and he's just realized what's happened. He is screwed. And Dermot, being our resident artist, has also done some artwork for our podcast episode that we're introducing right now. So let's move on to that. Tell us about the artwork that you've done, which is a a scene from Ulysses. Yes, it's uh, Leopold Bloom, who has the misfortune to live about 80 or 90 years before the invention of the Internet and online pornography. And he has to get his jollies by trying to glimpse a woman's ankles as she steps onto a a, a bus or an omnibus, a jaunting or a jo- car, jaunting car. Mm-hmm. A bit of a Benny Hill vibe. I was, me. yeah, I was gonna say like his tongue sticking out and his hat's popping off, and he's got big goggle eyes, and <laughs> not not one for the age of me too. I'd say no. Well, uh, if if you'd like to see Dermot's artwork and cancel him, you can check that out at bloomsandbarnacles.com. Don't cancel Dermot; he's Please. all right. Okay. We've got a few shout outs. First of all, we'd like to thank everyone who's donated to us recently. If you, dear listener, would like to donate, you can. Again, bloomsofbarnacles.com and top right of the page is a little tip jar donate button. And this week, we'd like to thank William Dunbar and Paul Dunn. Thank you very much. We also have a monthly newsletter. It just went out. It goes out at the top of every month and gives you a preview of our upcoming episodes and links to that month's content so you don't have to peruse Facebook or Twitter if you don't feel like it, or just constantly refresh our website, which is what I assume you're all doing in between blog posts and podcasts. Another way to support us if you don't feel like donating is you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help people find the show, and we'd like to share a recent five-star review with all you listeners. It was entitled, Amazing! I fell in love with Ulysses in the context of a college class. When I was done, I wanted more, but didn't know where to turn. Enter this podcast. This podcast is engaging, humorous, and intelligent. Thank you for putting so much love and joy into this podcast. Thank you very much, kind reviewer. 
And finally, our last bit of business is in our monthly newsletter and also on our social media. We like to share a question of the month just to get a little feedback from you guys and to let you have fun. And this month's question was, if you could teleport into Ulysses, what episode would you want to hang out in? And we have a couple of fun responses that I really enjoyed. The first one is from Ilaria. Wandering rocks. I would love to lose myself on the maze of Dublin streets and come across so many characters, maybe watch them from afar, even better, kind of hovering over them. I'm going a bit crazy, am I not? The bit about Father Conmey in particular goes very near my first house in Dublin. I'm so homesick for Ireland at the moment that my heart leaps out every time I read it. And let me just add, if you need a bit of like Dublin material, I've been watching walking videos of Dublin on YouTube. Just go to YouTube, type in Dublin walking video, and there are lots of them. And there's just people walking. They just film themselves walking around many other cities, but I like the Dublin ones. And uh, yeah, it's kind of in the same for us as well. Yep. I'm fond of the Korea ones. (laughs) All right. Uh, Our next response is from Susie. I'd love to look out over the sea at Dublin, see the Sandy Cove Martello and taste their coffee. I'd make the lads go down and get the milk instead of having the old woman scale the ladder. And I'd definitely see what Book does with his towel after the swim. (laughs) Telemachus for me. All right. And our last one is from Mai on Twitter. And I'm going to read this one because Mai wrote a little bit in Japanese. And she says, Watashiwa episode 11 de Simon no Uta o Kite Mitaine, which means I would like to hear Simon's song in episode 11. Hmm. Thank you, everyone, for responding. I, I don't think I put out a question of the month this month because I couldn't think of one. But uh, we'll come at you with another one of those in the near future. Let's move on to today's text, which is from Ulysses' fifth episode, Lotus Eaters. And if you're following along at home, today's passages come from page 73 and 74 in my edition, which is the 1990 Vintage International Edition. If yours is different... Look on a different page. And Dermot's going to read the first paragraph here. He strolled out of the post office and turned to the right. Talk. As if that would mend matters. His hand went into his pocket and the forefinger felt its way under the flap of the envelope, ripping it open in jerks. Women will pay a lot of heed, I don't think. His fingers drew forth the letter and crumpled the envelope in his pocket. Something pinned on. Photo, perhaps. Hair? No. McCoy, get rid of him quickly. Take me out of my way. Hate company when you. Thank you, Dermot. All right, thoughts on that passage. Oh, so this is where he's getting the the, the love letter from his pen pal. Uh-huh. And uh, he's being very, like, suspicious. Doesn't want to be seen. Um, there's something pinned on the photo, perhaps. Hair, no. Um, well, hair would involve, like, actual hair. So if it's a, if it's a bald gentleman gaslighting him then he's out of look oh, bald gentlemen can get your hair if you need hair I guess they could yes um, let's see uh, so McCoy I don't know who McCoy is but clearly it's somebody and he doesn't want to talk to McCoy because he wants to read the letter mm-hmm. he says hate company when you I mean so I'm assuming that means I hate having company when I'm trying to do something that I shouldn't be doing yep yeah we'll we'll get to know McCoy quite well in this episode and the next, so you'll feel like you know him mm-hmm. by the end of the month. Mm-hmm. I always feel like this is Bloom's Curb Your Enthusiasm moment. Mm-hmm. I always hear the music in my head yeah. when I read this part because Bloom is braving a dreaded stop and chat mm-hmm. where some acquaintance oh, of yours stops you on the street and makes you exchange small talk with them. Right, which Larry 
uh, David mm-hmm. hates more than anything. Yeah, yes, there, there's literally an episode about it. Chat, yeah. If you check out the blog post version of this passage, you can see the video. I'll, you know, I'll embed it in the show notes for this, which our listeners can find at bloomsandbarnacles.com. Right. Yeah, but I, I think that Bloom really wouldn't want to meet anyone right now because he's trying to be sneaky, right? He's he's set up this, you know, fake mailbox. or it's, it's a real mailbox, but a mailbox under a pseudonym at a post office that's not in his neighborhood. He's gone to great pains to conceal this um, epistolary affair. Um, and here's McCoy, this, this idiot, come here to ruin it for him. Uh, so that leads us to the next question. Who is McCoy? So McCoy is a character originally from the Dubliners story, Grace, which is the second to last story in Dubliners. And the long story short is that Grace opens with Tom Kernan, who's also a Ulysses character. We, we talked about Tom Kernan recently. He uh, He's a, a tea merchant. Mm. Bloom wanted to get some right. uh, tea from him. But he gets too drunk and falls down a staircase, and so his friends decide to have an intervention by taking him to hear a famous, I believe, Jesuit priest speak. And McCoy is one of those friends of Tom Kernan's who, you know, tries to get him on the straight and narrow. Bloom is not happy to see him, and it's not just because Bloom is being weird and furtive. It's because McCoy is is not... He's kind of that friend, like, you hang out with him, but you don't really like him. I mean, he's kind of a, a pity friend. Mm. And if you read it through Grace, it's pretty clear that his friends in Grace share Bloom's begrudging politeness when dealing with him. He is, I should say, McCoy is plainly the dweeb of this group. And I, there's a scene near the end of Grace where McCoy and four of his friends, I think all of whom appear in Ulysses, uh, they're arranged in the pews of a church, and there's there's five of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so go ahead and read this passage from, from Grace. McCoy had tried unsuccessfully to find a place in the bench with the others. And when the party had settled down in the form of a quincunx, he had tried unsuccessfully to make comic remarks. As these had not been well received, he had desisted. All right, so there's these five guys sitting in a church. And, you know, five is an odd number. So four of them had kind of paired off. And uh, a quincunx is the shape you'll see on on the side of a dice, the, the side mm. with, with the five, where it's two pairs and then one in the middle. Right. And so McCoy is the, the center of the quincunx. So the other two paired off and then McCoy is sitting in the pew between them trying to make funny remarks and they are just ignoring him until he just stops. So he's that guy, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. In in this story, his friends sort of assure him, oh, there's no way they could possibly accommodate him in either pew. So he sits alone. And that's really all you need to know about McCoy. We're going to learn more about McCoy, but that tells you a lot about his character right there. Mm-hmm. McCoy works as an employee of the city coroner. That's his job in both Grace and Ulysses. But in Grace, it's stated that he was once engaged as an ad canvasser for the Freeman's Journal, which is Bloom's current job. It's also implied in Ulysses that he probably either stole or embezzled some money. Mm -hmm. And as we'll see, 
That's the real reason he doesn't go to Patty Dignam's funeral, because he knows that Joe Hines from the, the Freeman's Journal is going to be there, and he doesn't want to confront him accidentally. But the money was only resting in his account. Yes, exactly. But it also meant that he had to go get a different job. McCoy's wife, Mrs. McCoy, McCoy's wife, is also a soprano like Molly, but she's not as good. Due to these similarities of job and spouse and sort of um, outsider personality in the friend group, McCoy is seen by some scholars as sort of a proto-Bloom. Like I said, McCoy and Bloom share these key biographical details. They're both the odd man out, but there's always a pecking order. And now that they've met, Bloom seems to know he's at least a rung or two higher than McCoy on the social ladder. And uh, as we'll come to see, he's, he's not afraid to, at least internally, lord it over McCoy just a little bit. Hmm. Um, outward, well, well, we'll see how it unfolds outwardly. So because McCoy and Bloom, in this view, are kind of the same person who has diverged, we can think of Bloom... When he meets McCoy, this is Bloom encountering his Jungian shadow. So how would you describe this concept of, of the shadow? The shadow, are, it's the parts of your own self that you fear and hate the most. Or it's the what you think is the part of yourself. It doesn't have to be an actual aspect of you, but it could be a part of yourself that you think you have. Mm-hmm. Like you might think that you're this and you project that fear of what you think you, you are onto another person. It's, I, I've heard it described as using another human being as a white screen that you then project your shadow onto. And you can, there's various forms of projection, anima projection, animus projection, shadow projection. Um, but yeah, shadow projection will be the most common where we criticize other people for our own defects, real or imagined. Mm-hmm. So when we see Bloom turning his nose up at the his kind of dweeby counterpart, this is really showing Joyce's great flair for irony because on some level, Bloom is going, ugh, this guy. And it's kind of him, mm-hmm. but not quite, but also kind of. And uh, I think Freud called it the narcissism of petty differences as well. Like mm. the, you, you hate the people that are most like you. Mm-hmm. So the people that are most similar to you are the ones people tend to hate the most. Well, in our case here, what Bloom sees in McCoy are his, his own least favorite personal qualities. And he subconsciously fears that he's as annoying and ineffectual as McCoy. He's, I think when he's seeing McCoy, he's thinking, oh, is that how people see me? Mm-hmm. But subconsciously. Um, Joyce scholar Marvin Magalaner wrote that Bloom strives continually to break out of his loneliness, refusing fellowship to a likeness of himself. That's kind of sad in a way. Mm-hmm. Maybe he and McCoy could be friends if we put aside his petty differences. But we're going to wait until the end of the next episode where we finish the McCoy sequence to see if Bloom's really being petty or if he's kind of justified in avoiding McCoy. Mm -hmm. Here it would seem because Bloom is rejecting someone who's an aspect of himself when he rejects McCoy, Bloom's really rejecting himself. There's a sadness to it. Mm. But let's withhold our judgment of Bloom because we got to get to know McCoy first. Sometimes the person that nobody likes, nobody likes him for a reason. That sounds mean to say out loud, but, you know. Mm. All right, so let's enter into conversation. 
Go for it. Hello, Bloom. Where are you off to? Hello, McCoy. Nowhere in particular. How's the body? Fine. How are you? Just keeping alive, McCoy said, his eyes on the black tie and clothes he asked with low respect. Is there any... No trouble, I hope. I see you're... Oh, no, Mr. Bloom said. Poor Dignam, you know. The funeral's today. To be sure, poor fellow, so it is. What time? A photo it isn't. A badge, maybe. Uh, Eleven, Mr. Bloom answered. Okay, what do you pick up in that? Yeah, Bloom's very cold, isn't he? Yeah, he doesn't want to talk to he's this just guy. formal. He's like, yeah, and he's not asking any, like, big questions back. He's just answering and being very pro forma. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, you ever meet someone like in the supermarket or something and you have to stop and talk to him because you know him, but you don't really want to talk to him? Mm-hmm. That's more or less what's going on here. And you notice here there's this one little bit of, uh, you know, interior monologue here. A photo it isn't. A badge, maybe. Bloom is not invested in this conversation. He, A, doesn't like McCoy. And, you know, this is why people hate the stop and check because it's just wall-to-wall small talk. Like, you're, you're not really getting to the bottom of anything like it's just exchanging pleasantries but bloom doesn't have time for that because he has a letter from his saucy pen pal and there's a mysterious little gift inside of it and he's 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 touching it with his fingers trying to figure out what it is so he's like it's not a photo right there's it's 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 too thick to be a photo and he says a badge maybe and a badge in this case means uh uh, Gifford and Seidman in their annotations said a, a token of membership in a Catholic organization. So maybe she sent him like a religious symbol, which <laughs> I I don't know what, you know, a fair pen pal sexy letters were like in 1904. But I, I find that to be an odd thing to yeah. to send, as, especially in, in return to someone, as we'll learn later on, sent her a very randy letter. So, um, yeah. So I'd say Joyce here is capturing the awkwardness of small talk. Do you like small talk, Dermot? I don't mind it. I used to hate it, but I I, I know you hate it. I but, hate it. Um, it makes me want to pull my hair well, out. Well, yeah, well, you have to start somewhere, you know. You're you're, you you're a better person than me. <laughs> I mean, I can live with that. Can't we just stop people on the street and talk about Wittgenstein or whatever? This is not the way it works. Why not? Because mm. I haven't read Wittgenstein. I haven't story, either, but... but it's good to name drop. <laughs> I think you have. Yeah. But he was in Dublin. You know, we saw this little plaque to Wittgenstein when we were up on the north side near the Phoenix Park. Let's get back to the small talk. Okay. I must try to get out there, McCoy said. Eleven, is it? I only heard it last night. Who was telling me? Hollihan. You know Hoppy? I know. Mr. Bloom gazed across the road at the outsider drawn up before the door of the Grosvenor. The porter hoisted the valise up on the well. She stood still, waiting, while the man, husband, brother like her, searched his pockets for change. Stylish kind of coat with that roll collar, warm for a day like this. Looks like blanket cloth. Careless stand of her with her hands in those patch pockets. Like that haughty creature at the polo match. Women all for cast till you touch the spot. Handsome is and handsome does. Reserved, about to yield. The Honourable Mrs. and Brutus is an honourable man. Possessor wants take the starch out of her. Jesus. <laughs> All right, what are your thoughts? <laughs> Dirty bastard. Yeah, he gets really aggressive here. <laughs> Jesus Christ. He's putting his frustration at not being able to read that letter into this anonymous woman. Hmm. But this is your turn. I'm I'm talking over you. No, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, so now 
I drew her stepping like about a foot off the ground. But now that I see a photograph of a jaunting car, I can see why why Bloom would be like trying to get a little upskirt action going on because you, that woman's hem of her dress is about three feet over the ground. That, mm-hmm. That's a that's a big step off the ground. And there would be like a little a little step up. Like right, she's not right. like she's not just like yeah, up, yeah yeah rope laddering up like you know, yeah. Lara Croft or anything. No. And and so I think sometimes we've we've carelessly said he's trying to see her ankle, mm-hmm. but it's her leg. Like yeah yeah he can see more he yeah. can see more than an ankle. Yeah yeah. Any other thoughts on this? Um. Yeah, he's like eyeing up the man as he a husband or a brother. Like if mm-hmm. it's a husband, he can't touch her. If it's a brother, oh, she might be single. He's he's like almost thinking. I like, guess she available for an affair. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he just wants to ogle her. Yeah, you know, he's, yeah. He's just objectifying her. Yeah, yeah I was yeah. gonna say he's sexualizing her. Yeah, but there, you know, I'll I'll save my comments on that for later on in this episode because mm-hmm. I've I've got plenty to say. So. Uh, the the Grosvenor. What what's the Grosvenor? Oh, hotel. So I assume long gone. Um... Yeah, it was fashionable in the early nineteen hundreds. Uh, the address was at five Westland Row, mm-hmm. which is very near Sweeney's Pharmacy in Dublin. I looked at Google Maps. I wasn't sure which which building it is now, but mm. it's one. I think it's one of those old Georgian buildings in that area. Okay. Um. So all you need to know, listeners, is just a, it's like. It's a nice hotel. Like it's it's not you know it's not some flop house. Right, probably like, like the Shelburne today, mm-hmm. yeah, or the Shelburne in nineteen oh four. With that little clue and with her manner of dress, we can assume she has money. That's what we're meant to. That's the yeah. social cue we're meant to pick up there. And really, Bloom is super bored with McCoy, and McCoy is being. He thinks he's being so slick. Like I said earlier, he's he's not going to that funeral, and he never planned to. Because he doesn't want to run into anyone from the Freeman's Journal. Um, and so I think it's likely here that he knew what time it is. At, but as as we'll see, McCoy is kind of working an angle with Bloom here. I don't think we get into it in this section, but it will be in our next episode. But just, just make note of that. He's trying to be slick here. Um, anyway, so Bloom is like, yeah, I know. Um, and so his, his, his attention starts to wander. Right, he's kind of kind of floaty, maybe a little brain foggy. He's not really paying attention to McCoy because Bloom here is kind of under the influence of the Lotus. This woman becomes the object of his focus here, and she becomes a new Lotus for Bloom to kind of lose himself in. Um, and uh, I believe that the technique of this episode is narcissism, which we said is not like a psychological description of narcissistic personality disorder. But um, a classical narcissism of a a, a self a self serving love. Mm-hmm. So this woman, he is you know kind of aggressively thinking about. He's he's sexualizing her, objectifying her, however you want to put it. You know he's getting kind of worked up about her. But it's it's something that can never ever be fulfilled. Like it's it's just for his own gratification, of like oh yeah you know if I if I got in there I'd you know. She wouldn't be so snooty then. I, I don't know that she's doing anything snooty. He's kind of projecting that onto her. Um, comparing her to some, uh, as he put it, haughty creature at the polo match. Anyway, she is getting onto an outsider. Bloom gazed across the road at the outsider drawn up before the door of the Grosvenor. An outsider, as I alluded to before, is a jaunting car. It's called an outsider. So it's kind of a little horse-drawn cart that's meant to draw people. 
has two wheels. The horse is in front, uh, naturally. And the passengers sit back to back in the cart with luggage in the middle facing out, thus the name Outsider. Uh, there were also inside jaunting cars where people faced in, and it was still it was kind of the same setup. Um, this style of jaunting car was called an Irish jaunting car due to its popularity in Dublin and Ireland in general. Looks like it'd be fun to ride on. Mm -hmm. It reminds me a bit, if anyone's ever been to Southeast Asia, of a, a cyclo, which are very common in Vietnam. And it's basically like a, like a bicycle rickshaw. But I guess you, you you face forward in those. Anyway, the driver of a jaunting car is called a Jarvie, which is a word you'll see a lot in Ulysses. And you might not know if you are not from 1904, because I don't, I don't think that's a job that really exists anymore. Um, I found a great picture of some women in an Irish jaunting car uh, from the National Library of Ireland's archives. I will put that in our show notes if you want to see what that looks like. Um, this is mentioned a lot in Ulysses, and it's just kind of something I never really looked up, but seeing it added a certain clarity to what Dublin would have looked like in those days. So it's it's worth looking at. Hmm. They can find that in our show notes for this episode, number 77, at bloomsabarnacles.com. Yep, go find it. Uh, let's talk about, I said we we're going to talk about Dubliners. Let's do that a bit more. McCoy mentions that he talked to Hoppy Hollihan, who is a character in the Dubliners story, A Mother. And he appears in the opening, well, I should say, the the very opening paragraph of A Mother is just a description of, of Hoppy Hollihan. So if you could read that. Mr. Hollihan, Assistant Secretary of the Era Abu Society, had been walking up and down Dublin for nearly a month with his hands and pockets full of dirty pieces of paper arranging about the series of concerts. He had a game leg, and for this, his friends called him Hoppy Hollihan. All right, what's a game leg? Uh, like an injury. It yeah. could be any number of things, but a limp. Yeah, I, I, I would guess that's not like a passing thing because mm. his nickname is Hoppy. Mm -hmm. It's my understanding that in Ireland, it's very easy to get a nickname. Yes. So mm. he has a, you know, a, I guess we call it like a, a, disa a, a disabled leg Yeah. now. And so his friends call him Hoppy because being woke wasn't invented yet. Can I tell you about one of my classmates' nicknames? Sure. We call him Chemos. Chemos, uh, the god of lustful orgies from Milton's Paradise Lost because he had a party in his place one night when his parents were out and apparently just got a bit rowdy. Mm -hmm. So we thought he's Chemos, the god of <laughs> lustful orgies. I doubt it stuck, but it stuck for the duration of our school time. That's pretty That's pretty good. That's better than Hoppy. <laughs> so one thing that kind of jumped out to me here is Hoppy Hollihan gets mentioned throughout Ulysses. He's in Dubliners as well. He doesn't really play any key role. He's always kind of in the background. But as I was reading this, it had been a while since I'd read Dubliners. Um, one thing McCoy is kind of gearing up to ask Bloom about is Molly's upcoming concert tour. And I realized here that Hollihan has experience organizing concert series. So I think he is purposely mentioning, he's like, oh, who told me about Patty Dignam? Oh, that was old. Poppy Hollihan. Like, I think that McCoy is trying to use that as like an angle to to get towards like past the small talk of the stop and chat and into the the meat of it because he is uh, he's trying to squeeze some favors out of Bloom, which again, that's in, in our next episode. So you have to wait for that if you're listening to this in real time. But that that's my 
That's my suspicion as to why he mentions Hollihan. Yeah. All right, that's all I have to say about that. Let's read the next section. I was with Bob Doran. He's on one of his periodical bends. And what do you call them? Bantam lions. Just down there in Conway's we were. Doran lions in Conway's. She raised a gloved hand to her hair. In came Hoppy, having a wet. Drawing back his head and gazing far from beneath his veiled eyelids, he saw the bright fawn skin shine in the glare, the braided drums. Clearly, I can see today, moisture about gives long sight, perhaps. Talking of one thing or another, lady's hand, which side will she get up? And he said, sad thing about our poor friend Paddy. What Paddy? I said, poor little Paddy Dignam, he said. Thoughts? So yeah, he's completely blanking on the conversation mm-hmm. and he's just lusting after the woman and the and the, the carriage. So it's, it, I'm reminded of the boring priest from Father Ted. Oh. <laughs> oh, now let me tell you about boilers now. The, the great thing no, about that boiler. better than that he's guy. He's better than that guy, but it's the same kind of thing. And there's, who's the guy in Derry Girls, Colin? Uh, uh, yeah, their uh, uncle yeah, Colin. Yeah, and he, oh God, now let me tell you now. Uh, what was his name? And this is the thing, that's like a good tell too for a boy. Mm-hmm. What was his name now? It was John. No, I tell a lie. Joe. Jo. You know, God, just get to the fucking point. Yeah. And and that's the kind of it never be that person in an Irish pub. You won't be thanked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get the impression with McCoy too. It's just much that he's boring. It's more so that he's always trying to like work an angle. Yeah. Um, yeah, and Bloom is really like half listening because yeah. Bob Doran and Bantam Lions are different people, and he kind of condenses them into Doran Lions. <laughs> yeah. In Conway's, which is a, a pub, and, but we see here Bloom's veiled eyelids. And he and he's thinking like drawing his head back and gazing far from beneath his veiled eyelids. So his his eyes are kind of droopy because mm-hmm. he's under the spell of this lady lotus. Uh-huh. Um, and then he he says something that every every drunk has said at some point. Clearly, I can see today. Like I can see way better now that I've you know I've got this lotus in me. Mm-hmm. You know, beer goggles. Yeah. Oh, the beer helps me drive better. Mm-hmm. I think it's that kind of thing. And then here's the here's the concern: which side will she get up? Because if she goes around to the other side, then he's not going to get to see her leg. Mm. <sighs> All right, let's talk about Dubliners. Uh, uh, first is Bob Doran. Uh, he is the focus of a Dubliner story called The Boarding House, in which he was a tenant of Mrs. Mooney. She ran a boarding house where she and her daughter were also working a scam. They were sort of conspiring to force some young man staying in the boarding house into marrying the daughter by impregnating her out of wedlock. Daughter is in on this. She wants to get married. And this is how they decide to snag her a husband. Um, Their plan worked. And it was poor Bob Doran. And he uh, is now, we see him post-Dubliners as just a miserable alcoholic because he hates his life because of what the Moonies have done to him. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was with Bob Doran. He's on one of his periodical bends. So he's on a bender. Uh, he's, yeah, drinking like a fish. Bantam Lions. Bloom will have a very fateful meeting with Bantam Lions before the end of Lotus Eaters. Uh, so we'll talk about him more then. But he's also a Dubliners character. And he appeared in what Joyce described as his favorite Dubliners story, Ivy Day in the Committee Room. Do you know what Ivy Day is? No. Uh, Ivy Day is October 6th, so if you're listening to this in real time, this podcast drops on Ivy Day 2021. Happy Ivy Day, everyone. Uh, which is the anniversary of Charles Stuart Parnell's death. Oh. Who is Parnell? 
uh, leader of the Home Rule Party, or the Irish Parliamentary Party, I think mm. it was at the time, um, who sp- spent his entire political career trying to get Home Rule for Ireland. Mm-hmm. Home Rule Bill after Home Rule Bill, all squashed in the House of Commons. Mm. Yep. Um, we've talked about Parnell in the past. Un- understanding Parnell's place in, in politics of the day is pretty key. Um, we will talk about him again. But let's just talk a little bit about Bantam Lyons. So he's described in Ivy Day in the committee room as looking younger and frailer than his companion, who was an older, um, heftier gentleman. Bantam has a thin, clean-shaven face, and he wore a high double collar and a wide-brimmed bowler hat. Um, In the boarding house, Mrs. Mooney, the, the boarding house owner, notes... Bantam Lyons by name as someone who would be more difficult to trick into marriage than Bob Doran. So Lyons was also a mark for her, but she's like, nah, I don't think, I don't think he'd go through with the marriage. Whereas poor old Bob is an honest fella. So he's had his life ruined and, uh, yeah, I guess don't be honest. Anyway, uh, in Ivy Day in the committee room, Bantam Lyons is working as a nationalist political canvasser who likes a little drink now and again. And we learned that he supported Parnell, but then turned against him after a sex scandal. And uh, even questions Parnell saying, quote, do you think now after what he did, Parnell was a fit man to lead us? Having an affair with the wife of another man. Uh Uh-huh. That the other man definitely knew about for like a long time. Yeah. Probably didn't care about because he was off banging healers. Mm-hmm. Mm. So that's Bantam Lyons. I mean, that's who he is. Uh, we'll see him in action before the end of Lotus Eaters. So, but yeah, uh, Joyce I think wrote a lot of characters he liked in Dubliners and uh, just brought them over in the Ulysses to mm-hmm. continue populating uh, his his vision of Dublin. Mm-hmm. It's kind of cool to see the mm. the crossover. Right. All right. Next. Off to the country, Broadstone probably. High brown boots with laces dangling. Well turned foot. What is he foostering over that change for? Sees me looking. Eye out for her the fellow always. Good fallback. Two strings to her bow. Why? I said. What's wrong with him? I said. Proud, rich, silk stockings. Yes, Mr. Bloom said. He moved a little to the side of McCoy's talking head. Getting up in a minute. All right. What do you think? (laughs) I am McCoy's talking head. Oh god. He's just an object there going yeah. Poor McCoy. Mm. Foostering's a great word. Do you did you know foostering prior to seeing it here? Mm, I don't think so. I I know about fertling. Um thanks to the time team. The, the We're not gonna talk about fertling. If you want to know what fertling is <laughs> <laughs> a Google image search will be more illustrative <laughs> than anything uh, we could tell you here. Fooster is an Irish word, as it's from the the Irish language, mm-hmm. as you can see here in my uh, Hiberno English. Di- mm-hmm. Yeah, F U F A D A S T A R, and it means busy, agitated behavior. Okay. Gifford and Sidemen say it's yeah an anglicized Irish word that means to bustle about, mm-hmm. and I believe this line is is. Uh, a re-edition from the uh, 1984 Gabler edition of Ulysses. Hmm. Yeah, I'm looking. I'm looking here. There are some uh, ex- example sentences. He was foostering about the place, 
and stop your foostering and get on with your homework. That's fooster. Mm. Uh, so it's a nice little bit of hiberno English there. Bloom is starting to create a little his own little uh, narrative for these people. He's he's feeling suspicious because he's doing a sp- suspicious thing, and he he's getting frustrated with the the man uh, who's with this woman because you know he's foostering about with the change. He's like, just get over with it. So she gets in the car, and then. Right. Like I said, because Bloom is being suspicious, he thinks the other guy's suspicious and thinks that he's been spotted. And he's saying about the other guy, I out for other fellows always. And then for the woman, mm, good fallback, two strings to her bow, which it sort of means like she's always got something on the back burner. Right. Because this guy's a dweeb. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she'd definitely go for Bloom, I guess. All right. Let's read the next. What's wrong with him? He said. He's dead, he said. And faith, he filled up. It's a Patty Dignam, I said. I couldn't believe it when I heard it. I was with him no later than Friday last, or Thursday was it, in the arch. Yes, he said. He's gone. He died on Monday, poor fellow. Watch, watch, silk flash, rich stockings, white watch. A heavy tram car honking its gong slewed between. Thoughts? Poor Leopold. Yeah, poor him. He just needs Pornhub. It's all he Isn't it? Yeah, there's no, this is as good as he's getting. Yeah. Um, I'm glad he's not like a devout Catholic or the priest would have a thing or two to say to he'd him. Have some, he'd have some good confession material. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of a symbolic coitus interruptus. Mm-hmm. Um, Bloom's trying to see that, that stocking. She's about to get up. And then you, you can just hear. <laughs> That's not what a tram sounds like, but just this big, heavy clanging thing. Yeah, clang, clang, clang. <laughs> like at the at the worst possible moment. So let's let's talk symbolism here. Um, McCoy stands as a, a symbol for Bloom's own se- sexual inefficacy because Bloom uh, and Molly, you know, they they haven't had a, a complete sex act. Um, I think it's in about t- since since Rudy died, their son. Remember we talked about this in the Millie Bloom episode mm-hmm. and uh you know, they are practicing uh, the pulling out method. Um, and as a result, Bloom has not fathered another son, and he feels very inadequate because of that. In this case, the passivity and imp- impotence are an aspect of the lotus that's casting a spell over this whole episode, Bloom in particular. So, you know, he's so sec- sexually incapable that not only is he, like, Putting all his energy into this Im- impossibly fruitful encounter, right? Like nothing's going to come of it. He's going to see this lady's leg and, mm-hmm. you know, get his jollies from that. But that also is like cut off from him by a passing tram. Right. Um, and he sees that kind of symbolized in, in McCoy, right? So he sees McCoy as kind of a dweeb. He's an outsider. But he's also like, you know, he, he is inefficacious, if that's a word. Um, McCoy him, himself appears in Joyce's schema for this episode as a lotus eater. So McCoy is also kind of caught up in, in this uh, in, impotence. So he's a good symbol for that. And while Bloom's disinterest in McCoy is an example of that technique of narcissism uh, that Joyce is employing here, this is in part because right now Bloom is unable to creep around a corner and indulge in his little masturbatory affair with Martha, which we'll see also 
doesn't seem to have any intention of consummating. Um, and here it's because of McCoy's interference. Like McCoy is basically cock blocking him on the most minute level. He's, he's dub doubly doing so because he's, you know, he's being prevented from, you know, cause maybe if, if Bloom were alone, he could like walk to a better vantage Angle. point. Yeah. Or he could yep. just go skulk into the alley and, and read his, his mm -hmm. saucy letter. Mm -hmm. And so McCoy is doubly blocking him here. Right. Joy scholar Philip J. Herring interpreted this little pervy microcosm as a representation of the macrocosm of Bloom's dysfunctional marriage. So we're going to real symbolic here. Bloom wants to experience a sexual moment, in this case, seeing this woman's leg, but is blocked by a tram that represents Blaze's Boylan. Perhaps he could have shifted position, but as I said, he's locked in place by his own impotent reflection, McCoy, and passivity and sexual incapacity are effects of the narcotic atmosphere of Lotus Eaters because no bold actions are taken. Right? Everybody's kind of, you know, they're all sluggish. Mm -hmm. Finally... And this, this line kind of comes after the, the section we're looking at here. You can just like skip ahead in your book and read it. But um, after McCoy has departed, Bloom speculates that his acquaintance's chatty exterior might mask sexual motives of their own. Um, just as others will speculate in Ulysses about Bloom. Basically, Bloom wonders to himself if McCoy is quote-unquote inclined a bit or that way inclined a bit uh which is suggesting that maybe mccoy is gay and that's why he's so amicable with bloom uh it's pretty quickly dismissed i don't think there's anything to it but later in the episode nine so in charybdis buck mulligan speculates that bloom is quote greeker than the greeks also implying bloom might be gay as well you know so it's again that kind of shadow aspect mm -hmm. um Let's go on to the next section, which is our final section for today. Lost it. Curse your noisy pug nose. Feels locked out of it. Paradise in the purry. Always happening like that. The very moment. Girl in Eustace Street hallway Monday, was it? Settling her garter. Her friend covering the display of esprit de corps. Well, what are you gaping at? Yes, yes, Mr. Bloom said after a dull sigh. Another gone. One of the best. McCoy said. The tram passed. They drove off towards the loop line bridge, her rich gloved hand on the steel grip. Flicker, flicker. The lace flare of her hat in the sun. Flicker, flick. All right. Thoughts on this final <laughs> section here? <laughs> Jesus. He really hates McCoy for, <laughs> for like depriving him two seconds of a woman's calf. Mostly. McCoy is very unlikable. <laughs> In, uh, in fairness to Bloom. <laughs> but yes, also that. Okay, Paradise and the Perry. The Perry I'm not familiar with. Um, so then he's like flashing back to Girl and Use the Street. So he's. he's yeah, she's like a... arranging her stocking and yeah. her friend kind of steps in front of her. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, what are you gaping at? Seems like what the, the friend probably said to him. Yes, that's that's right. Yes. Yeah. yes. Esprit de corps is a, means like a spirit of association, like right, some kind of right. camaraderie. Yes, yeah. Well, what are you gaping at? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's like been that. a pervert. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly, this is a pattern with him. Yes. We. Well, you remember the 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 cleaning lady in, mm. in Calypso? Yep. Yeah. Bloom is a, a gawker. Mm. 
He's not. I don't think he's he's very. I'm, what's the word I'm looking for? Like it's it's obvious that he's doing it. Like he's right. he doesn't have a good poker face. Yeah. Uh, he's he's lecherous. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I think you'll notice too. He sometimes does lecherous things when he is feeling unmanned in some way. Mm-hmm. So I think when he's looking at McCoy and seeing this kind of unmanly man and and seeing himself reflected in it, he's like, "Well, I'm going to do something really masculine and." Look at this lady. Hmm. Also, he's just horny. Like, he's he's not getting any right now. And Yep. Mm-hmm. A couple things. Actually, I think just one thing in, in this section. A lot of this is pretty straightforward. It's just that phrase, paradise and the peri, P-E-R-I. Gifford and Seidman's annotation says that this is a catchphrase, meaning, quote, so near to paradise and yet prevented. It's the title of a Thomas More poem from a collection called Lala Rook which um, fits into our Orientalist theme. So it's a, it's a, it's a, a peri is a, a creature from Persian mythology. Um, it's a sort of winged superhuman creature. Uh, they kind of look like angels when you see them in artwork, but they're not at all like angels in the Christian sense. They are beings that are neither good nor evil. So therefore they are very near to paradise but they're unable to, you know, enter paradise. Because mm. they're not really evil, but they're not really good either. Mm. And there's an image of one right here. I'll put the same mm. image in our show notes, mm-hmm. which people can find at. Bloomsbarnacles.com. So that's that's how Bloom feels. Feels locked out of it. Paradise mm. in the Perry. Always happening like that. It's like, good God, man. Like, it was one a little bit of calf muscle, you know? Like, pull yourself together. But, I mean, he's just funneling his frustration in, into this interaction of, like, oh, I really want to go, like, figure out what's in this letter and then read the letter and see if she's mad at me. And I can't because this idiot's here. And I'm trying to make up for it by looking at this lady. And it's just not working. The tram went by. <laughs> I mean, Bloom, this is an understatement. Bloom has some, uh, you know... Like pent up emotion inside him that he's not really dealing with. And yeah, th- it comes out this way. He's not a cruel man, no. and he is lecherous, but he's not very actively so. Like he'll ogle people, but like he's not like pinching asses or rubbing mm. legs or like doing like sexual assaulty stuff. He just leers. It's just still creepy. Mm. This is creepy what he's doing. I don't have any thoughts beyond this is creepy and yourself. Yeah, pretty much. All right. Well, um, he needs to eat more Weetabix and cornflakes because that will help his digestive no, system to reduce his masturbatory impulses. Well, he um, the 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 master masturbatory impulse uh, is ultimately what got Ulysses banned. <laughs> so it's it's yeah, it's not just a uh, metaphorical mm. masturbation. Eventually, so we'll get to that though. That's that's not here. That's later. Um, which, you know, that kind of masturbation is a, a type of narcissism. It's self-pleasuring, right? Self-gratification. Mm. So it fits in well with our current episodic theme. Mm. Uh, is this where we're ending it now? Yeah. Masturbation's the episodic theme? Yes. Well, we'll finish talking about Bloom's encounter with McCoy. The next section's very exciting. Uh, we could talk about Plum Tree's potted meat and Bloom's missing hour. So, uh, get ready for a non-sub thrill ride in two weeks. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye.
Thanks for listening to the Blooms and Barnacles podcast. Your support means the world to us. You can subscribe to Blooms and Barnacles on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other place you listen to podcasts. You can also stream our episodes at our website, bloomsandbarnacles.com. That's bloomsandbarnacles.com. If you've enjoyed our podcast, you can do one of three things to help support us. Number one, please donate at bloomsandbarnacles.com. The PayPal donate button is at the upper right-hand corner of the page. This helps us pay for coffee and for hosting fees. Two, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice. This helps more people find our show. And three, share us with a friend who you think would enjoy Blooms and Barnacles. Blooms and Barnacles is also a blog. We post new articles and original artwork semi-regularly at bloomsandbarnacles.com. Never miss an update by following us on social media. Search for our group Blooms and Barnacles Podcast on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at BarnacleCast. You can also send us an email at bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com. That's bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com. We met some of our favorite podcast friends through random emails and social media DMs. We'd love to hear from you too, so don't be afraid to shoot us a message anytime. We'll be back in your feed in two weeks. Bye for now.